Gresham College presents Is Suicide Sane? To Be or Not to Be? That is the question by Dr. Raj Persaud. Thank you very much. Um, now, if at any time my uh, voice levels fall a bit and you don't hear me at the back, do, do let me know. Don't, don't uh, persist without, without hearing me. Can you hear me at the back? Great. Okay, good. One August day in 1937, H.B. Wobber, a 49-year-old bargeman, took a bus to the Golden Gate Bridge, paid his way through the pedestrian turnstile, and began to walk across the mile-long span. He was accompanied by a tourist he'd met on the bus, Professor Lewis Naylor of Trinity College in Connecticut. They had strolled across the bridge, which stretches in a single arch from San Francisco to the hills of Marin County, and were on their way back when Wobber tossed his coat and vest to Professor Naylor. This is where I get off, he said quietly. I'm going to jump. As Wobber, as Wobber climbed over the four-foot railing, the professor managed to grab his belt, but Wobber pulled free and leapt to his death. Less than three months after the Golden Gate Bridge had opened to great fanfare, Wobber became its first known suicide. Since then, more than 800 others have jumped, making it the number one location for suicide in the entire Western world. As with most suicide statistics, the numbers are conservative. Only those who've been seen jumping or whose bodies are recovered are counted as bridge suicides. One expert suggests that more than 200 others may have leapt unseen in darkness, rain or fog, been swept out to sea and their bodies never found. A leap from the bridge is easy, quick and lethal. One merely steps over a chest-high railing. At 70 to 85 miles an hour, the 240-foot fall lasts four seconds. If the force of the fall doesn't kill the jumper instantly, the fierce current will sweep him out to sea to drown or be devoured by sharks. Of more than 800 people known to have fallen or jumped from the bridge since it opened, only 19 have survived. By 1990, there had been 885 confirmed deaths, including a depressed man who wrote in his suicide note before stepping over the railing and leaping to his death, why do you make it so easy? During the suicide prevention movement of the late 60s and early 70s, the debate over an anti-suicide fence came to a head. Bridge directors received hundreds of letters, about two-thirds, opposing the barrier. Some argued it would spoil the view. Why destroy the view for so many for the sake of so few? Others felt it was a waste of money. Why spend on someone who wants to die? Many defended a person's right to suicide. If and when I decide to die, I would prefer the bridge as an exit point, and I don't want to be kept from it by a high jail-like railing one woman wrote to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are worse things than death, and one should be able to make that personal choice if necessary. This is the core issue of the debate around suicide, and raises the question, is it a personal choice which should be respected, or is it something we should devote notable resources to preventing? 
Chad Vara, an Anglican clergyman in London, starting in November 1953, developed in the crypt of St. Stephen Walbrook what was at first a telephone service staffed almost entirely by volunteers to befriend the suicidal and despairing. Suffice it to say that in the past half century, this enterprise has flourished and has become an international movement. There are now over 203 Samaritan branches in the UK and Republic of Ireland alone, not to mention branches in almost 80 countries around the world. In 2002, the Samaritans received 4,660,000 contacts by phone, email, letter, and face-to-face -face in settings as diverse as prisons and local fairs. Well, what gave Chad Vara the original idea? He writes that when he read in 1953 that there were three suicides a day in London, his restless mind busied itself with the question, why? As I hope to show tonight, this key question of why people commit suicide is linked to the question of why people don't. The question Samaritans are now asking is also much wider than just being about suicide prevention. It's about emotional support for all of us at a much earlier stage in the suicidal journey. Given depression or the negative mood states that frequently lead to suicidal thinking behavior are so common in universal psychiatry, questions begun to emerge. Does depression have some kind of purpose? Evolutionary psychology is the new field that has begun to raise the provocative question of whether psychiatric illnesses, such as depression, are so common because they serve some kind of evolutionarily useful function. This new discipline hinges on the idea that much of our motivational and emotional machinery evolved to help us survive in an ancestral environment. The argument is that much of our behavior and sentiment makes more sense if we begin to consider the possible advantages to our ancestors from hundreds of thousands of years ago. As we evolve to live in very different circumstances in which we experience now, could depression be an adaption which makes sense in an ancient environment, but less so today? It is clear that even aversive states like pain have a positive evolutionary function. And pain is a good analogy for considering the function of depression, because there is a way in which we can think of depression as a kind of emotional pain. Physical pain is unpleasant, but there is a good reason for this. In its insistent, aversive state, it draws our attention abruptly to a part of the body which might require urgent attention. Pain breaks through competing stimuli and gains our focus. But pain doesn't just grab our attention. We work ceaselessly to try and fix the cause of the pain in order to remove the sensation. These are two key concepts in the evolutionary theory about the function of depression. It draws our attention to something that needs fixing, and it motivates us to fix it. If depression is an emotional pain, what is it drawing our attention to, and what needs fixing? One function of depression could be social, to draw our attention to the depressed person in order to try and provide assistance. Perhaps the ability to feel empathy with the depressed and to bring and to imagine how horrible depression might be motivates the well to render assistance. In our distant evolutionary past, perhaps you were noticed when you were depressed because we lived in small, close-knit groups and you got more attention and care as a result. In a large, anonymous city like modern London, perhaps depression is now evolutionarily out of place and as a result has more tragic consequences. Samaritans, in providing a mechanism by which negative mood can be noticed, are therefore, according to this theory, playing a vital evolutionary function. 
Paul Watson and Paul Andrews, biologists at the University of New Mexico, in a recent paper in the Journal of Affective Disorders, suggest what they term a social navigation hypothesis as the underlying reason we have depression. A hallmark of depression is that depressives tend to expend a huge amount of cognitive effort, what might be termed ruminating, and usually this reflects a preoccupation with their social situation and their relationships with others. Indeed, depressives outperform normals on social tasks. Their person perception is better than normals. In one recent experiment, the depressed were found to be better able to spot lying, manipulative, and other deceptive behavior compared to controls. Indeed, it could be because of their ability to see through the phoniness of everyday social life that they become depressed in the first place. Depression leads to withdrawal, psychic and physical retardation, but inside the person, there's actually a lot of mental activity. <clears throat> the social navigation hypothesis posits that at the heart of depression is a huge physical, emotional, and mental diversion of effort from usual activities like physical action and eating to social cognition or rumination to try and solve some social problem. This social focus needs to be part of the realignment in our thinking about treatment to include a social perspective as well as the need for medication. We know that married people not getting along with their spouses are an astonishing 25 times more likely to attract a diagnosis of major depression than people without marital unhappiness. Another study found that approximately 30% of new episodes of major depression are associated with marital dissatisfaction. We also know that recovery from depression is hastened by improvements in social relationships and strong social support. Actually, perhaps the key thing about pain is that our experience of it leads to strong attempts to avoid it in the future. And this is its key adaptive feature. Perhaps that's the point of depression. It is so aversive that having experienced it, we try to avoid it in the future. And these preventive steps are the key adaption. This means we are cautious about our attachments. And it is notable that women who are more prone to depression than men are also more wary than men about entering relationships and selecting possible future partners. If we were less careful about attachments because we had no fear about depression, then attachment as a human phenomenon in its present form might not even exist at all. But if we now see that depression might have some evolutionarily positive purpose, what is the purpose of happiness? The key evolutionary puzzle about happiness is that you actually don't need to be happy to survive on a day-to-day -day basis. Maybe happiness has a fundamental social function, in that happy people are so pleasant to be with, they're actually storing up social credit for the future. The goodwill towards the happy is like a deposit in a bank, which can be drawn on when you are less ebullient. Maybe when we are happy, we are expansive and generous, and in so doing, we build up credit with partners, so they will tolerate us more when we eventually get depressed. But what happens when the people we built up the positive credit with move on, as happens in the mobile urban anonymous society we now inhabit? Is it possible Samaritans play a vital role in stepping in to be that emotional bank of credit we can draw on when low? 
This is one of the key debates about the role of therapy. Is it just about providing a relationship, or is the content of what the therapist talks to you about the vital thing? Some people argue, in large part, formal therapy consists of helping the client reconceptualize the can'ts, the won'ts, the absolutes, and the non-negotiables of the patient's present firmly held positions, to widen the stubbornly fixed blinders of present perceptions, to think the unthinkable. There is a 20th century example of this that precedes Samaritans in being an example of effective suicide prevention. Over half a century ago, on August the 14th, 1945, Japanese Emperor Hirohita, in the first ever address to his people, in his historic prescript of capitulation, ordered his loyal subjects to surrender. This is a supremely important moment in suicidology given the Japanese nation's historically high suicide rate and its strong belief in loss of face, honor, and suicide as an honorable way out of humiliation. Mass suicide across the nation was the most likely response to such a humiliating message of surrender from the emperor. But in a few brief sentences, the emperor touched on two main antidotes to suicide, a generational sense of the future and a personal redefining of what is intolerable, the two key lacunae of any suicidal scenario. His words are arguably the most effective suicide prevention speech ever made. Here, in part, is what he said. It is according to the dictates of time and fate that we have resolved to pave the way for a grand peace for all the generations to come by enduring the unendurable and suffering what is unsufferable. Those few words save thousands of lives. But even if we can theorize about the function of depression and, and happiness, this doesn't mean we can use these theories to explain suicide fully. Many who contemplate suicide are not depressed and feel this is an expression of ultimate personal choice. Hamlet's question is at the heart of suicide. To be or not to be, yes or no, light or total darkness. It's a question that has more contemporary relevance than ever before because actually it's easier to take your life in contemporary industrialized society than ever before in our history. Seneca, who lived at the time of Christ, pointed out way back then, rather disdainfully, that the exits are everywhere. Each precipice and river, each branch of each tree, Every vein in your body will set you free. But actually, once you have heavy industry and technology everywhere, like trains on tracks on which you can throw yourself, the exits multiply. So that on your way home tonight, the opportunity to commit suicide effectively are much more than it ever was for the caveman returning home of an evening. Yet we think we live in safer times. But it's not just the opportunity that has changed dramatically over time, but also our attitude to suicide. During classical Greek times, suicide was viewed in more than one way. It was tolerated and even lauded when done by patricians, generals, and philosophers, but condemned if committed by plebeians or slaves, whose labors were necessary for the smooth functioning of a patrician slave society. In classical Rome, in the centuries before the Christian era, life was held rather cheaply, and suicide was viewed rather neutrally or even positively. The Stoic philosopher Seneca said, Living is not good, but living well. The wise man, therefore, lives as well as he should, not as long as he can. 
He will always think of life in terms of quality and not quantity. Dying early or late is of no relevance. Dying well or ill is. Life is not to be bought at any cost. For the next two millennia or so, suicide was largely seen in a religious context, and this meant it was condemned as being a sin. The next big advance in understanding suicide, outside the context of it being a sin, awaits the advent of psychoanalysis. Freud never wrote directly on this topic, but his followers and himself advocated the view that suicide was really a kind of inwardly directed homicide. In 1910, there was a meeting on the topic of suicide in Freud's apartment in Vienna. On that occasion, Wilhelm Steckel, a psychoanalyst, pronounced that no one kills himself except one who wishes the death of another. Rage at being let down or deserted by someone was turned inward on oneself because it could not be expressed outwardly. Psychodynamically, suicide was seen as murder in the 180th degree. Following the horrors of the Second World War, a major sea change occurs in Western thinking. The issue becomes not so much why do people kill themselves, but why do the rest of us bother to try and stay alive? Existential thinking comes to the fore, with the principal task of man to respond to life's apparent meaninglessness, despair, and its absurd quality. Albert Camus begins his essay, The Myth of Sisyphus, by saying, there is but one serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Ludwig Wittgenstein also stated that the main ethical issue for man is suicide. Carl Menninger, a famous American psychiatrist, published in 1938 a book which captures the prevailing pessimism of the time, entitled Man Against Himself. The fundamental thesis is that we perform self-destructive acts all the time, not just when we are overtly suicidal that deep down we are our own worst enemies, because it is us who constantly initiate behaviors that are inimical, inimical to our own best interests, from saying the wrong thing to your boss all the way down to cutting your own throat. Currently, the US Army uses a recruitment slogan, be all that you can be. The army is talking about fulfillment, of using all of one's capacities. The opposite of being all that you can be is living at much less than you could. This is the area of sub-suicidal neurotic lives that is Menninger's focus. To attend to suicide only and miss that most of us are probably living a sub-suicidal neurotic existence is to fail to put suicide in context. Menninger argues that a lot of the bad things which happen to us and which we put down as accidents are actually unconscious attempts at suicide. For example, he cites a famous case of Freud's, of Air K. He was a former lover of Freud's patient Dora, and latterly the object of her accusations and hostilities, who came one day face to face with her on the street where there was much traffic. Confronted with her who had caused him so much pain, mortification and disappointment, as though in bewilderment and in his abstraction, he allowed himself to be knocked down by a car. Freud comments that this is an interesting contribution to the problem of indirect attempt at suicide. But if suicide is difficult to study because the one person you want to ask about it is no longer around to explain, then attempted suicide projects its own problems. Those who attempt suicide and fail are often embarrassed, at the least, at the cock-up, and frequently are reluctant to discuss in detail the painful episode. A notable exception is Al Alvarez, a poet, a poetry critic, an essayist, journalist, and in his own published words, a failed suicide. He wrote a lyrical book, The Savage God, about suicide, and published in 1972. For Alvarez, suicide is chosen because essentially it represents an escape. 
a whole class of suicides who take their lives not in order to die, but to escape confusion, to clear their heads. They deliberately use suicide to create an unencumbered reality for themselves or to break through the patterns of obsession and necessity which they have unwittingly imposed on their lives. Alvarez also oddly argues that no man is promiscuous about suicide. Each has a favorite method, and once that doesn't work, they are unlikely to try another. But this is a key argument in suicide prevention. The most popular argument against a barrier at the Golden Gate Bridge is that it simply wouldn't work. Common sense said that suicidal people would simply go kill themselves somewhere else. Richard Sidon, a Barclay psychologist, gathered the names of 515 people who had been restrained from jumping from the bridge, dating back to its opening day. Checking their names against death certificates, he learned that only 25 had gone on to take their own lives. Although his research proved that people did not inexorably go on to commit suicide using another method, critics argued that people restrained from jumping were not truly bent on death. What about those who had jumped and lived? In 1975, psychiatrist David Rosen interviewed six of eight people known to have survived leaps from the Golden Gate Bridge. None of the eight survivors had gone on to kill themselves. The six he interviewed all favored the construction of an anti-suicide fence. They all said had there been a barrier, they would not have tried to kill themselves some other way. For many years, the most popular method of suicide in Great Britain was asphyxiation, sticking one's head in the oven and turning on the gas. After the discovery of oil and natural gas deposits in the North Sea in the 50s and 60s, most English homes converted from coke gas, whose high carbon monoxide content made it highly lethal, to less toxic natural gas. From 1963 to 78, the number of English suicides by gas dropped from 2,368 to 11, and the country's overall suicide rate decreased by one-third. Despite England's varying unemployment rate and social stresses since then, it has remained at that lower level. Yet going back to the lack of a barrier at the Golden Gate Bridge, a San Francisco friend once said to me, 99% of us don't need it. Is it fair to ruin the view for the sake of a few? If they want to die so much, why not let them? This attitude is shared by many. How far is it from this passing condoning to the chorus one sometimes hears when a crowd has gathered at the base of a tall building to watch the weeping man on the ledge high above, shouting, jump, jump, jump. Fortunately, in answer to the voices who cry jump, there are many others that cry live. Not just the voices of family, friends, therapists, and prevention center volunteers, but the voices of strangers. When an 18-year-old girl stood on the ledge of a seven-story building in Mexico City, threatening to jump, Ignacio Canido, an 18-year-old Red Cross male nurse, inched out toward her. Canido was tied to a long rope, held on the other end by a squad of firemen. Don't come any nearer, shouted the girl. Don't, or I'll jump. Canido grabbed for her and missed. The girl screamed and jumped. Canido leapt after her, caught her in midair, and locked his arms around her waist. They fell four floors before the rope snapped taut. Canido's grip held, and he and the girl were hauled back to the roof. I knew the rope would save me, said Canido. I prayed that it would be strong enough to support both of us. There are dozens of similar stories of potential suicides saved by strangers who instinctively reached out. 
As a term project for the psychology of death, a course taught by psychologist Ed Schneidman at Harvard, one student placed an ad in the personal section of a local underground newspaper. Male, 21 student, gives self three weeks before popping pills for suicide. If you know any good reasons why I shouldn't, please write to box D673. Within a month, he had received 169 letters. While the majority were from the Boston, Kentucky, sorry, from the Boston area, other came from as far away as New York. As New York, Wisconsin, Kentucky, even Rio de Janeiro. They offered many reasons why he should stay alive. Some wrote of music, smiles, movies, sunny days, sandy beaches. Some quoted Rod McEwen, E.E. Cummins, or Dylan Thomas. They suggested he spend time with others less fortunate than he, implored him to think of those he would leave behind, called him a coward, and dared him to struggle and survive. Some referred him to a therapist. Others offered friendship, enclosing their telephone numbers or their address. A few enclosed gifts, two joints of marijuana, an advanced calculus equation, a Linus doll, magazine clippings on the subject of kindness, a photo of apple blossoms with the message, we're celebrating apple blossom time. Some simply broke down in the middle of their letters and pleaded, don't, or you just can't. The student was not actually contemplating suicide, but the answers he received were real. Whether they might have persuaded someone truly suicidal to stay alive or not is impossible to say. But if the forces that lead someone to suicide are numerous, those forces that combine to prevent someone from killing himself may be equally complex. Whether they be antidepressants, a prevention center volunteer, a barrier on a bridge, a Linus doll, or the voice of a stranger saying, I care. Thank you very much. We've got some time for questions. Yes, um, Raj has um, very generously agreed to answer some of your questions. Um, I think he's going to avoid any practical details of what might happen, but um, Raj, I leave it in your hands now. Uh, there's a question at the back there. Right. When you're asking a question, you can always, if you want, say your name and, and maybe any connection with the issue that you're raising, but you don't oh, have to. No, I've got no, I've got no connection with it particularly. No. Oh, yeah, but uh, I... I was in a mental health centre for a while, and when the mental health nurses said that a lot of the people he'd known who suffered from periodic depression actually never act didn't actually commit suicide when they were in the depths of depression, but they did, they, they did so when they began to come out of it. So because they began to come out of the depth of the sort of native depression, began to be cheerful again, that, that was the point at which they committed suicide. I wonder whether that's, you know, it has but that's a common, a common observation. Yeah, that, that is a common observation, and, right. and, and it's a very important observation because yeah. a lot of the controversy, for example, that three panorama programs have been devoted to around the yeah. idea that certain antidepressants cause people to kill themselves neglects that very important fact that sometimes the treatment for depression makes people feel a bit better, and in that slightly better, more motivated state, that people are more likely to kill themselves. And that point also goes to an essential issue, which is that most people who are thinking about killing themselves are in conflict about it. Mm -hmm. and, and if you're in conflict and you're not sure whether to do it or not, 
the lack of energy you feel because of the depression might be the thing that stops you doing it. Mm. There's another very interesting issue around that conflict, going back to the Golden Gate Bridge, which is that someone did an interesting study looking at which side of the bridge people tend to jump from. Because there are two sides. There's the side facing San Francisco, which I don't know if you've been to the bridge, but it's a fantastic view. It's one of the most glorious views of this beautiful town on the side of this wonderful hill. And there's a bay. It's a fantastic view, particularly when the sun is setting behind you. So there's that side you could jump, which is looking out at the town that you've just come from. Or there's the other side you could jump from, which is looking away from the town, out to the sea. And really, there's nothing there when you look out. And... The vast majority of people, actually, let me ask that question. Anyone want to have a go? Which side do most people jump from? No, they jump from the other side. They jump facing the town. Okay, which suggests to some psychologists trying to interpret what that means, that actually, you know, they're in conflict. They're looking back at, at the town and they're, they're looking back maybe regretfully at, at the town. They're looking back at life in a sense, you know. Um, so some people see that as a conflicted message, the side of, from the bridge at which they, they jump from. Of course, this controversy is whether you can make that interpretation. But one of the points I'm making is a lot of people argue that from a philosophical standpoint, it, suicide can make sense. The point I'm trying to make is that actually a lot of people are, are in conflict at that moment. And the, one of the reasons why, why I'm really interested in suicide is I think in a secular society, increasingly secular society, where, where I mean, in terms of what suicide does, in terms of when people reach out and try to grab the person jumping from the ledge, in a way, to do that, you have to believe that life is worth living. And the, and the issue of suicide crystallizes a crucial question, which is, what is the point of life? And religion supplies an answer to that at some level. But in an increasingly secular society, in the absence of religion, what is the answer to that question? And what I like about the issue of suicide, if that's a slightly macabre way of putting it, is it crystallizes that question, which often in a capitalistic, materialistic society, we can often glaze over or forget or, or, or ignore. And I think the people who reach out and try to grab the person from jumping are people who believe life is worth living and are trying to make a rescue attempt and believe there's something worthwhile about life. But I think the issue of suicide crystallizes that crucial question, which is what meaning is there to life? Slightly long answer to your question, I'm afraid. Thank is you. There? Derek Gregory, um, I'm doing a course at uh, Birkbeck College on uh, 1945 and after, including the last World War. In terms of your, um, the reference to the uh, Japanese suicidal uh, outlook, um, would you say it's one of obedience? They were told um, to commit suicide rather than face the humiliation of um, uh, defeat. Uh, uh, as individuals during the war. And then they were told by uh, the emperor not to commit suicide, but to stay alive uh, for the reasons of peace that you give, you gave rather. And not, there's been not one incident of a suicidal uh, incident or, or attack since the end of the war, since the surrender for uh, the Japanese. So would you say it was one of obedience? Take other suicidal uh, the bombers, for example, that we experience today, right up to the, the present second. Uh, would you not say that that similarly is one of obedience to the higher authority, which tells them to do it or not? 
Well, it, it's an interesting theory. One, one thing I would say, um, and, and it's interesting we hear um, politicians and uh, uh, spokespeople talking to us all the time on the radio and television about why people are suicide bombers and what's really going on. Now, one of the powerful things about psychiatry, and I'm very critical about psychiatry in many respects, but one of the really powerful, important things about psychiatry is psychiatrists at least do this one thing. They don't try to come up with a theory about a person's behavior without, first of all, trying to speak to that person about their behavior and trying to gather some important information from that person in terms of their own account of why they do what they do. Their own account may be impoverished, and we may want to reject it because it may not square up with the facts, but it's kind of an important starting point. What is that individual? individual's account of why they're doing what they're doing. And to going back to the suicide bomber, what's really fascinating to me and a grave, grave weakness with the modern media is the lack of attempt to get that story from the communities and the people involved in this enterprise. Okay, and that's the crucial. If we talk to the people um, who are involved in the enterprise to find out their own account, that's a good starting point of why people do what they do. And the first thing you find is that the two main communities that produced a large number of suicide bombers, the Tamils in Sri Lanka and the Palestinians um, in, in Palestine, you find that the community supports suicide bombing. Something like 70% of Palestinians support suicide bombing. Now that to me is a staggering statistic. So first of all, you can't pathologize it as an individual piece of behavior, individual pathology. It has to be something arising out of a community perspective on life and, and the, the struggle that they perceive. So the, the, I, I'm, I'm cautioning you to be wary of coming up with theories without starting from the standing point of asking people why they do what they do. But taking on board what you say, I think what you say raises a fundamental challenge to which there's a, an existentialist response. The existentialist philosophy is that we, the danger of human life is that we take on board rules and ideas about what life should be about from other people, that religion tells us what life should be about, that God tells us what life should be about, that our government tells us what life should be about. And the existentialist challenge is that that really is for you to decide. And you've got to take personal responsibility for deciding for yourself what life is about. And you should reject the rules and the guidelines that other people present to you and start from your own standpoint asking your own questions and negotiating your own meaning. And I'm a strong believer in people taking personal responsibility for, for that, the answer to that question, which is what is life about? And I agree with you, the danger is that many people inherit a viewpoint imposed upon them by an emperor or a government. Uh, sorry, again, a slightly long answer, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, could I ask one, Raj? Yeah, sure. is, uh, what's your comment on... Um community or mass suicide? Well, um, th there are several uh, examples of that. The famous one being, of course, uh, Georgetown and, and uh, Jim Jones. And uh, uh, this was a guy, uh, an American, who ran an, a, a cult based largely from Americans, often poor black people uh, in the US, who moved um, to uh, Guyana, uh, an obscure, very poor uh, um, part of the British Caribbean, but on the um, coast of uh, South America. And they set up this remote um, community. And what's very interesting about that uh, famous suicide, mass suicide, which is you had 800 people kill themselves in a matter of a few hours, is that um, they seem to be blindly following what Jim Jones had instructed. And what was fascinating about Jim Jones and his cult was they had rehearsed the whole suicide scenario several times before. 
which is fascinating if you think about it, that the whole, all 800 people had rehearsed taking the cyanide in the Kool-Aid, which is what the, the way they died. So they, they, they rehearsed it several times so that actually when it, the moment came that Jim Jones gave the instruction, it all went like clockwork. And the reason why they did it was some people from the American Senate had come to visit Jim Jones at that moment, and they were very worried that the, the whole um, of their cult and so on was going to be um, disrupted and taken away from them by American interference. So it was a response to an external event, an external threat. And you see that with Waco. You see that mass suicide tends to occur when people feel despair at that precise moment because they think there is no hope. And that goes back to an issue that cults create a view of the world, which is that we have the answer, the rest of the world doesn't, and if we fold up, there is no hope. Okay, that's, that's cult thinking. Um, that the rest of the world is evil, dangerous. If, if our cult doesn't survive, there is no hope. Now, what I find very interesting about that thinking, and I, I'm sure many here who come to my previous lectures will know that soon there'll be a political reference, I think that's very similar to the kind of thinking that modern governments try to persuade us with, which is if you don't follow us, if you don't follow our anti-terrorist legislation, there is no hope. It's all doom and destruction. Okay? It's the, it's the, there is no alternative, and the only alternative is you're all going to die, is the kind of implicit message of modern, the modern government's attempt to persuade us to go down often a very dangerous and frightening route. And that's exactly what cult leaders do. So it's a frightening uh, parallel, I think. Uh, let's go with that one. Yeah. Mine's a, a more, po more personal uh, question, really. Um, you mentioned uh, depression as being the cause of suicide. And one tends to think of that as being over a long period of time. Is there such a thing as sort of instant depression, suicide? My own brother committed suicide in a matter of days of being told that by his fiancée she was going to marry someone else. And I only met him a week earlier, and he's full of life. And, Yet, you know, we, we struggled to find an explanation for it. And to follow on from somebody else's question, it was in 63, after the very hard winter, and it was in the spring he did it, you know, when the weather was improving. Is there some connection? Sorry, can I ask you, I mean, you, you've raised a very important personal issue from, you, from your standpoint. Do, do you think that he, he kind of thought that there was no possibility of a life worth living without this girl who he'd lost, lost out on? Do you think that might have been something to do well, with it? Well, it's very strange. He never even mentioned her. It, it was a week after my 21st birthday, actually, and he, he'd never mentioned anything about this girl. And uh, he only really communicated with my mother uh, and uh, left a note to my mother. And we were all very surprised, the rest of the family, that uh, he even had a girlfriend who was prepared to marry. Yeah. Can, uh, I, can I ask, I know, I know again it's a difficult personal issue, but could you say, is it possible to say something about what was in the note, or is that difficult to say? It was a note, yes. But did you say anything in the note that might give us a clue? Uh, yeah, well, according to my mother, and we never saw the note ourselves, that he referred to this girl. And, uh, right. And he had a Bible beside him, you know, the usual right. sort of thing. And in fact, it was used in a, a gas oven, as you mentioned. It's, it seemed yeah. to stop after that when they yeah. introduced North Sea gas. Well, uh, it, it's a very important question you're asking. Um, there are a couple of things about that that fits with a lot of research. One is, oddly enough, I know that women often accuse men of not being very romantic, but many more men kill themselves as a result of a relationship breakup than women do. Women often make an attempt, but women very rarely kill themselves. Whereas it's very common, actually, in terms of why men kill themselves, for it to happen in the context of a really recent relationship breakdown. It was the quickness of it, you know. Um, yeah. But you see, he may not have been... Um, well, one of the problems with men is they pick very lethal methods 
You see, it's, it's about the method. Um, determined, yes. Well, I'm not, I'm, no, I'm, not, I'm not saying that he was necessarily very determined. He just happened to pick a method that was extremely lethal, and that's the problem. In other words, if he'd picked a different method, let's say he went for taking tablets, the length of time it takes tablets gives people a longer period of time in which to change their minds. And also, it's much more difficult to kill yourself with tablets. So you might have ended up in hospital, might have been washed out, and he might have survived as a result. So it's the, it's the lethality of the method that's the crucial thing. And there's another convergence of a point here, which is I've just come back from Sri Lanka. I just made a BBC World Service program about Sri Lanka, because Sri Lanka had, until very recently, the highest suicide rate in the world. And it was a puzzle, because suicide has a lot of, uh, Sri Lanka has a lot of things going for it. It's got free education, free health care. It's a poor country, but it's not as terribly poor as, as many good other countries. Weather. Sorry? And good weather. Yes, and it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful country. And when you go there, what you find out is the reason why there's a very high suicide rate is not because it's a very depressed population or people are suffering a huge amount of stress. It's because of the, the method they pick, which is many people are living out in a, an agrarian situation in rural, remote rural communities where they're living in small farms and pesticides are the method they pick. They take pesticides, and pesticides are highly toxic. You only got to take a small amount, and your chances of coming back are very slim. And a lot of these people are taking the pesticides in an impulsive act, but they're probably not that suicidal at that moment. So th there's a mistake to interpret someone's mental state from the act of suicide it's important to, to realize that sometimes someone may not have been that suicidal, it's just the method they picked happened to be extremely lethal. In other words, someone could be more suicidal, but they may pick a much less lethal method and survive as a result. Yeah, that seems to differ from Finland, where it's, uh, I would have thought it was the weather and the, the lack of light which causes it. Well, um, the, oddly enough, the light thing is a, is a frequent argument. The, the evidence is that um, countries with, with low light and long winters, like Iceland, uh, Finland, those, those nor northern European countries, don't have as high a rate of depression as you might expect. And one theory is that if, if, if over generations of people living there, because the other thing, interesting thing about those countries, they have very low immigration rates, very homogeneous communities, is that thousands of years of the same people living there, if you got a lot of depression, you couldn't cope with low light, you wouldn't survive to pass on your genes. So it's a highly selected population for people resistant, in fact, to low light conditions. There is another recent theory about the idea they eat a lot of fish, and it's the fish that's keeping them cheerful. Because <laughs> there is some evidence that, that um, there's a direct correlation between the kilograms of fish consumption per head of population and rates of depression. But that's another, another story. Are there any, so there's some other questions. Uh, this, okay, we'll come, back, we'll come to you in a second. Let's just let her hand up. Right, I mean, in a way... Yeah, yeah. shown them are not realistic. For example, if a young person loses their boyfriend or girlfriend, they may have the sort of catastrophic, th catastrophic thought, 
that they'll never be happy again and they'll never find any, anyone else. But an older person with more experience it, it knows that it's very likely that they actually will find someone else and they will be happy again. And that's why there's this, this move to prevent people. Because I missed, I'm afraid I missed your last talk, and I'm sure you probably touched on this, um, because we feel that they're having irrational thoughts and that if we can only hold on to them until they're thinking more rationally, then they may change their mind. Yeah, uh, I, I would argue that that argument, I mean, it's a good point, but, but that argument is the kind of argument a therapist would make, because of the... the <laughs> right, okay. Um, uh, I haven't lost my touch. <laughs> um, because you're very aware of, of, of theories of, of, of mind to do with the fact that catastrophic cognitions may underpin depression and explain people's thinking. My argument is coming from a slightly different angle, which is I think it's really interesting that so many people, um, complete strangers, people who have no background in psychology, have an instinct to rescue the suicidal. Because actually, if you think about it hard, it's a really intrusive thing to do. You know, I mean, you're interrupting someone going about their own, as it were, personal business. Um, so it's a very intrusive thing to do to actually interrupt someone making what some people would argue is a personal decision. Who are you to stop someone doing what they want to do with their lives? So I think, I think, um, I think there's something almost at a deeper philosophical level about the attempt to interrupt someone. And I, I'm a strong advocate for people doing that. Um, but I think it's, it's at a deep level a belief um, about the fact that, that life can be worth living, but you have to come up with an answer to that question, which is, what is a life worth living? What is that about? And that's not an easy question to answer, I think. I don't know if I've answered your question. I hope I have. <laughs> uh, there's, there's another question. Oh, should we go over there, then come back here? Yeah, I wonder if you could talk a bit more about the statistics. Because um, if people take an overdose of paracetamol and then die, that's often regard, recorded as suicide. But if people continue to smoke against medical advice and then die of a smoke-related illness, that's, as far as I know, not considered suicide. And also, I believe the police often note that cars that smash into trees, that's probably suicide, but that, that's often recorded as accidental. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. That, uh, I mean, one of the really interesting points that I, that I hope I tried to make was that we tend to think that it's blindingly obvious when something is suicidal and when it isn't, but actually it's not so obvious. And it probably is the case, as I said, that the statistics grossly underestimate the number of genuine suicides. And, for example, a large number of car crashes... Um, uh, lethal car crashes probably are disguised suicides. And it is very interesting that roughly the same number of people who kill themselves in Britain as, as recorded as suicides, i.e. 5,000 people die from suicide, recorded official statistics in Britain every year, there's roughly 5,000 people die on the roads every year in, in car crashes. It's a very similar statistic. And um, if, you, if you look at things like, for example, suicides have a seasonal pattern. Um, they tend to go up a bit in spring, then dip, then go up again in the autumn, then dip again, right? And what's very interesting is car crashes follow that same seasonal pattern, which is inductive evidence that maybe a large number of car crashes could be uh, disguised suicides. But I also think there's an even more general point that Menninger was making, as I said in my lecture, about sub-suicidal neurotic lives, the self-destructive element uh, to the lives th that we all lead. And I come back in a way to this point about what 
what life is all about, and the, the, the ultimate answer to the question of why shouldn't people kill themselves. And I actually think the answer to why people shouldn't kill themselves, because often people are looking for an answer to do with the individual, why, why should I stay alive? The answer is about the fact that we always live in a social context. If you kill yourself, you will leave behind people who will suffer as a result. It's the social connections we live in. And I think we have social obligations towards the people around us. And that actually is a key part of, of the, the key um, anti-suicide argument. I would even argue that we have obligations for people we've never met. Um, Edison, who invented the light bulb, we're all here today benefiting from his invention. I actually think we have a kind of obligation to poor Edison, because we benefit from him, to actually give something back. So I think the fundamental argument is a social one as to why uh, we, we should stay alive and, what, and why we shouldn't kill ourselves. Um, I hope that's answered your question. Hi, I'm Krishna Maria. Uh, you mentioned in your lecture about escape. So the suicide is the ultimate escape, isn't it? Sorry, I didn't quite catch the question. You mentioned in your lecture, is it working or I don't know? Yes, it's on. <laughs> yeah, that uh, as, uh, suicide is an escape. Ah, yes, yeah. Al Alvarez argued that. Yeah. So it is an ultimate escape, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So in our daily life, we are escaping in one way or another. Yeah. So we are heading towards suicide, are we not? Well, um, it's, a, it's an important point you're making that actually a large part of much dysfunctional behavior on a daily basis, like alcoholism, drinking, etc., yeah. etc., et is an attempt to escape from something. Yeah. And a large part of therapy is about getting people to try and confront something that they've been trying to escape. And one of the reasons why therapy sometimes takes a long time, is it takes a long time for the therapist to build a relationship with the client and then gradually get them to confront something that they've been avoiding. And the ultimate avoidance is the inevitability of death. Um, and that, that some psychotherapists argue that's the ultimate avoidance in our society, that we live our lives in a denial of the ultimate reality that we are all going to die. And if we could confront that reality, we might lead better, more meaningful lives. And one of the things that I entertained the thought of doing today was to play you um, the, the latest William Shatner CD. Um, the, uh, the, the guy who used to be uh, Captain Kirk in Star Trek, because he's got a fantastic CD out. He's got a new career as a pop singer. And, he, and, and the third track on the album, which I strongly recommend to all of you, um, but I thought in the 500-year history of Gresham College, no one's played a William Shatner CD, so maybe I wouldn't take the risk. But his, his third track is... Um, uh, um, it starts off with the lyric, Live life like you're going to die, because you're going to. <laughs> And uh, it carries on in that vein. But uh, it's all about the inevitability of death and the fact that most of us think that we're going to be the first person in history that's immortal. Um, and, uh, but actually, it's liberating, his argument is ultimately. It's liberating to accept that inevitability because it actually adds poignancy and piquancy to life and get, gets some things in perspective, I think. And, and so there was a school of therapy back in the 50s um, which said that, we, that ultimately that's what we needed to confront a bit more. And that the Western life in particular is an de ultimate denial of death. You look as though you wanted to come back yeah, on that. Um, that's, what can we do to prevent uh, this suicidal tendency? Are we not uh, responsible for this? 
What can we do to prevent yes, suicide? Prevent it. Well, I've been marshalling several of the arguments. One is about looking at lethality, looking at methods that people use, looking at like an anti-suicide fence around the bridge. W would that make a difference? Because if people were stopped at one level, would they then change their minds, which is what the evidence is? Um, and then treatments of depression, um, but, but treatments also of, of a meaning in life, that people need to have a meaning in life and that keeps them motivated and keeps them uh, feeling that, that life is worth living. Those are some more, some more of the general points. I, and I hope I've answered that question. I don't want to stay too long with each particular question because no, other people want to come in. Can, There's um, one, one at the back. There's just a chap who wants to ask a question at the back. Sorry. Sorry, can I ask two very quick questions? I hope you don't mind. Um, the first is you talk about self-selection in Sweden and Finland. Why hasn't the depression gene self-selected itself out if you believe that it's a relic um, in evolutionary psychology terms? My, my first question. Yeah, well, the evolutionary psychologists, and um, I have to say here that there's a lot of skepticism of evolutionary psychology within psychology and psychiatry because they're accused of creating just-so stories, which is they can always explain away um, any piece of behavior as having some kind of evolutionary positive function from a million years ago because, frankly, we don't know what life was like a million years ago, so it's easy to make the speculation. And the other important point about the scientific validity or otherwise of evolutionary psychological theory, and it's, it's easy to forget this, is that behavior leaves no fossils. In other words, we don't know what people were doing a million years ago in terms of actual behavior. All we have are their bones. We can try and construct something of their lives. But actual behavior is, is a bit of a speculation. But the evolutionary psychology argument is that if depression is so prevalent, and it is very prevalent, one in five people will, in this room will at some point in their lives suffer a good going episode of clinical depression. Um, and, th and those figures roughly stack up all around the world. And if, as we know, depression does have a fairly strong genetic element to it, it's not entirely genetic, but it has a strong genetic element, then how come it's there? Um, now, one of the theories is to think about depression as a consequence of something. And one classic reason people get depressed is when an attachment breaks down. It's a grieving for a broken attachment. So in a way, it's a price you pay for attachment. For attachment to mean something to you, for you to care about other people around you, for that caring to have meaning, it makes sense that you get depressed when relationships break down. Conversely, if we didn't have depression, that might suggest that we didn't give a damn when uh, our wives or husbands leave us. So that's one evolutionary psychology theory around that. Um, the, the other theory, there are several different theories, but the other theory is that depressed people um, marshal support. If you're a depressed person living in a close-knit community, then people tend to sort of notice the fact that you're depressed and try to offer you comfort. And so it's a way of gaining support from people around you. Um, but these theories are obviously controversial. But I, I do think there is an important question to ask, which is not why did this person get depressed, which is an important question, but why is it so common? Um, th there is another very interesting question, which is, why is it not getting less common? There's a lot of debate as to whether it's getting more common, and I think that's controversial. But how come, given we live in an increasingly wealthy, more comfortable society, uh, depression isn't getting less common? I think just following on to that, I mean, in the society we live in, as you say, you feel that we all have to make individual decisions as to reasons for living life and why it is worth living. But that's end of deference, that breaking down of social structures, that individuality is precisely one of the causes of suicidal thinking, I think. There's a slight contradiction there, particularly as you're saying it's important that we prevent people killing themselves, that society intervenes. 
At the same time, I think we're undermining it through this end of a, I think it's the wrong word, deferential culture, but one that respects long-lasting social institutions. And that's an excellent, excellent point. Um, let, me, let me throw it back to you. Do you think that if people just lived a life because they obeyed the, the values imposed upon them from above, in other words, they never thought for themselves, that that's a better life than someone who made a decision early on they weren't going to accept this stuff and as a result got a bit depressed and killed themselves? I, I think it is a better life for you to make your own decision, but in pure absolute figures, I wonder whether that deferential society has a lower suicide rate. Yeah, and I think... I think and so which is better? Yes, I think you're, 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 you're absolutely right that, for example, in, in religious societies where suicide is, is uh, condemned, that there are, generally speaking, lower suicide rates. But if you go back to Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka is actually a very religious society. Um, uh, there's a very strong Buddhist um, uh, uh, culture there and, and other religions as well. And yet, um, the point being that suicide can sometimes be an impulsive act. I think you're thinking about suicide as something really carefully thought through over many days and weeks. Often, even if you're a Muslim or a Catholic which condemns suicide, impulsively you could still do it in the grip of strong emotions over a few hours or so. Again, I hope that's dealt with your question. I think there's another question over here somewhere. I believe that you are an agony uncle for the magazine Cosmopolitan. And the magazine is aimed at young women in their 20s who today will probably have a, a whole number of relationships before settling down. Do they have a higher suicide rate or more suicidal thoughts than those of us of an older generation who made up our minds about our partners much younger? Well, it's, it's an excellent question. And in fact, there have been a couple of studies done directly trying to answer that question. Looking, compare, these are cohort studies where they interviewed p women back in the 70s and 60s and then compared those women um, what, what their answers were in terms of rates of depression and, and, and their mental health with, with, with women of a of similar age today. Um, and generally speaking, um, the evidence is that actually, I'm afraid to say, because it's a very kind of daily mail type view of the world, that, that women, for example, in their 50s, back in the 1950s, do seem uh, to be happier than women in their 50s today. And of all the different demographics, roughly speaking, I think um, women in general, the evidences, don't appear to have got less depressed uh, compared to the 50s. And in fact, there are several different theories about that. One is um, an issue around eating disorders, the fact that eating disorders are much more prevalent today than they were um, back in the 50s. For example, bulimia nervosa, that most people have heard of and is, is incredibly common, was first described ever history worldwide in 1979, which is remarkably recent if you think about it. Uh, we, we've known about anorexia for much longer than that. But, um, so one theory is that the rise of eating disorders has actually led to a massive deterioration in women's mental health. And many of the feminists of the 60s have lamented the fact that um, women seem to have given up one set of shackles, which was the shackles imposed by a patriarchal society in the 60s, for another set of shackles, which is the idea you've always got to be in a diet in order to, to, to look great. And I actually have my own theory about that, which is that I mean, why, why is there such a dramatic rise in eating disorders? It's because of, I'm afraid to say, a lot of women's magazines and the fashion industry and the cosmetic industry, which are now multi-billion dollar industries. And they really didn't exist at all back in the 30s and 40s. Why do they exist today? They exist today because women have more spending power. 
than they had back in the 30s and 40s, okay? So actually, the very economic freedom that women have and the economic power has generated massive new markets, and the capitalists sat around thinking, this great new market's opened up. How are we going to flog products to these people? I know. We'll make them neurotic about their appearance, and we'll devote millions of pounds to throwing super-thin models at them so they think, even though they're perfectly acceptable shape now, they have to go for something that's really, really difficult to get hold of, but we can flog billion pounds worth of diets to, to this group of people. So I actually think the economic power and freedom that women now have has generated a whole set of new problems. I'm not, that's not an argument against women working outside of the home and, and having that economic power, but it raises, a, goes back to my fundamental point, which is that the problem with capitalism and economic development, unless you give people some sense of what life's about, Giving them wealth, giving them comfort, sometimes creates more problems. You just substitute one set of problems for another. So we come back to, you know, what, what life direction um, should people have? But the long answer to your question, the short answer to your question is that, generally speaking, the evidence is women's mental health is not better today than it was in the past. We now reach the magic um, 7 o'clock. I realize there are lots and lots of people. Um, it surprised me that we've um, been listening to Raj now for two months, and we've actually come around in full circle. Um, at the beginning, we listened to um, a lecture on the um, thoughts, internal thoughts of a terrorist, what makes a terrorist. We went then through um, delusion, and now we've come full circle here. Um, there have been so many, so many different aspects raised tonight, and I think we could probably discuss these forever. And there's some surprising things. We've discussed our, my trade, um, unlike Raj's, is in tropical diseases. Um, the people I see in Biafra, Rwanda, Burundi, the camps around um, Cape Town, they don't commit suicide. They just want to go on for another day. And when you talk to them, they say, what's life like? And they say, well, here, we've got no water, we've got no food, but there's no one trying to kill us, which is a very, very interesting approach. So there's a lot, in fact. To, and I think what you've also raised um, are the thoughts that one has oneself. Um, three of my acquaintances have killed themselves at crucial times in my life, one at school, one in the army, and one in the university. Um, these, to a certain extent, were figures of fun. Um, I in my own way, was probably responsible for these um, by not intervening or standing aside. One can remember that. And I remember a student who came to me many, many years later, late at night, and wanted to talk to me. And um, I always see students. It's one of the policies I've always had, see a student. We chatted. We had a couple of glasses of beer. Two days later, he wrote and said, um, I was thinking about suicide. I couldn't find anybody else to talk to, but you were my tutor. And I want to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. And I think what's important about your lecture this evening, Raj, is that um, if tonight you've stopped some of us committing suicide, if you've made some of us aware of the fact that we ourselves could prevent somebody else from committing suicide, this is probably the most important question lecture given for many, many years. And um, thank you very much indeed for these lectures. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.